Raiders, start your engines! Welcome to the one place everybody wants to be. Victory Lane, your source for news, analysis, discussion, interviews, and more from the world of NASCAR. Here's your host, Davey Siegel. Welcome back, party people, to the place everybody wants to be. You know it, you love it. It, of course, is Victory Lane. Today on the show, as you see, episode 110, another landmark, we have Nicky Bobby on with us to talk about his career, an old friend, and an interesting story to go along with it. Jewish geography never fails, my friends. How about Kyle Larson? Pretty impressive performance from him, huh? But before that, we're going to pay homage to somebody with the number 10. Dad has more on this week's Wayback segment. Thank you, Duve, and welcome everyone to episode 110, a number with new special meaning to our host. I like the trend we've established the last few weeks of exploring the numbers I didn't have a chance to review the first time around. So today... We'll be looking back at number 10. Ricky Rudd had a remarkable 906 NASCAR Cup Series starts over a 32-year race career. 196 of those starts came in the 10 car, along with six of his 23 career wins. He was the 1977 Cup Series Rookie of the Year. He was the 1992 IROC Champion and he won the 1997 Brickyard 400. But what Rudd is most well-known for is his Iron Man longevity streak, his fiery temper, and for being perhaps the toughest badass in the garage. His former crew chief, Richard Broom, gave him the nickname Rooster in the mid-70s. As Rudd tells it, Broom thought Rudd drove better when he was angry, so he regularly would try to rile Ricky up. One day when Rudd, not the tallest man in the garage, was getting upset at Broom for pushing his buttons, Broom laughed and told him he was like a Bantam rooster who looks for a fight when getting picked on. Rudd's 906 starts ranked second only to Richard Petty's 1184. That included a 788 race consecutive start streak that also ranked second this time only to Jeff Gordon's 797. For me, that 788 consecutive start streak speaks to Rudd's tenacity and toughness. How's this for an example? In 1984, Rudd wrecked badly during the Bush clash. The crash left his face and eyes badly swollen. That didn't stop Rudd, however, from getting back in the car to practice for the Daytona 500. When Rudd discovered his eyes were too swollen for him to see well, his car owner, Bud Moore, taped them open. Rudd finished seventh at Daytona, and with his eyes still taped open, he won the following week at Richmond. During that 788 race streak, he would race despite any number of illnesses, aches, sprains, and broken bones that would have put any other driver on the shelf. Ricky Rudd was named one of NASCAR's 50 greatest drivers in 1988, and he is a nominee for induction into NASCAR's Hall of Fame. I think his day will come. That's all for this week. Back to you, Doof. 
Thank you, Dad. Appreciate that deep dive as always. You may have like heard an ambient noise in the background. Those are cicadas. <laughs> my dad's at home recording. Uh, he and my mom thankfully helped me move this past weekend. Robin and I got a place in the city. It's dope. It's sweet. Uh, so if you're living in the city or if you're visiting DC, stop by, say what's up. But uh, yeah, thanks, Dad. Appreciate you uh, giving us that deep dive as always. Let's get started with this episode 110. Why not? How we always do with a good old fashioned reggaeton. Race recap time for the Coca-Cola 600 from Charlotte Motor Speedway. Kyle Larson. Enough said, right? <laughs> Hendrick Motorsports too. We got to talk about them. They both dominate the 600 mile race. My prediction almost came true. I said the morning of the race on the front stretch on Sirius XM NASCAR Radio Channel 90 that Larson would win every stage and lead 350 laps and win the race. And I was 28 laps off. I was so close. Nevertheless, dominating performance from Kyle Larson, one that he will for sure remember for a long time to come. Well, when Chase got by me early, I was like, uh-oh, you know, this is not this is not good. Um but when I, when I ate him up, get into the commitment line for the green flag stop, uh, and, and, you know, took a large chunk of that out and came out the leader. Um, I knew I had something in, in my advantage to be able to, to beat them guys. And then when William passed me, he was way faster than, than I was. He was way faster than chase was. Um, but I was, my goal when he passed me, he kind of stretched out a little bit. My goal was just to inch inch closer to him for when we got to the green flag stops because I knew I could do a better job than him uh, on the green flag stop. And that's what I was able to do. And, um, you know, we, we gained a lot of time. I think we pitted a lap earlier than him. I did a good job coming to the commitment line. Our pit crew did a great job on the stop. And, you know, I was able to edge him out down the backstretch when he blended up. And that that carried us to the to the third stage win and and the number one pit stall really helped um for our pit stops and and beating cars off for the caution stops so it it all just uh it all worked out really well and, and qualifying on the pole i think really helped our race tonight team owner rick Hendrick gonna remember this race as well why he is now the sole owner to have 269 wins to his credit wow Number one all-time surpassing Petty Enterprises. It's a big deal to him. He's said as much. The drivers have said that Mr. H tells them all the time how big of a deal it is. And he didn't care who won it as long as he got it. Look, I, 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 didn't, I didn't care who broke the record. I mean, I just wanted to win it, uh, any, any one of them. I pulled for them all the same. And, uh, you know, it's, it's tough when they're battling each other for the lead. But uh, the objective in this race was win it. And uh, whoever could win it, that was great. Uh, the fact that the five was my first number and we decided to go back to it this year, uh, it's pretty neat that that was the car number. But, it, I mean, 24's got a lot of history with us. Uh, Chase's number, Alex's number with Jimmy's 48. So I didn't care who won it, just so one of them won it. To do it in a crown jewel race probably means a lot to him as well. And at Charlotte, which is a stone's throw away from Henrik Motorsports campus, that's a big deal. HMS as a whole finished 1, 2, 4, 5. Kyle Busch breaks up the Hendrick party finishing in third place. He's the best of the rest, 
but that doesn't really mean much when you don't get any playoff points and you don't win the race. I also just want to say, I mean, Hendrick Motorsports, they're obviously the best team right now. We know that. I mean, that's obvious. But it doesn't really mean much unless you're the best when it counts in the second-to-last round of the playoffs for the season finale at Phoenix. If you're not the best then, then it doesn't really matter. So are they peaking too soon? That's neither here nor there for me to say. All I know is that this sport goes in cycles. Stuart Haas Racing's down right now. Hendrick Motorsports is up. You remember two, three years ago, Hendrick Motorsports was down. Stuart Haas Racing was up. These things are fickle. They just happen. So if you're a Stuart Haas fan, do not worry. If you're a Hendrick fan, soak it in. These things happen. Ty Gibbs wins another Xfinity Series race, his second of the season. Is he already looking ahead to potentially taking one of his granddad's seats at the cup level? That's one, you know, thing I, you know, there's definitely, I feel like if you blow it off, you kind of, you know, it's not, it's just something to think about. I feel like I think about a lot of stuff, you know, all the time I'm processing so much and, you know, I definitely think about stuff like that. I, I, you know, I, you know, right now I'm like, I'm just trying to run in my own shoes. You know, I would love to run Xfinity and, um, and just, you know, learn how it works and just get more experience with it and with the cars. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think I'm thinking about that right now. It's definitely cool though. I wrote a little bit more about Ty Gibbs in this week's NASCAR mailbox for Front Stretch, talking about how many wins he could potentially get across all series. Arca Xfinity, Arca East, Arca West, whatever he decides to run. Spoiler alert, it's a lot. John Hunter Nemechek, he's going to get a lot of wins too. He earns his third one of the season at Charlotte. Not surprising in the slightest, but damaged the car a little bit in practice or qualifying, and they repaired it enough so that he had race-winning speed on Friday night. It started today hitting the fence and third lap of practice having to uh, fix our truck. Um, luckily, we were able to fix it and I didn't hit the fence too hard. Uh, I don't know how I didn't pancake the right side, but um, overall team did an awesome job uh, repairing it. Uh, rained out qualifying, thought we had a shot at the pole. Um, and then uh, you couldn't really pass that first stage. The PJ1 wasn't in, uh, in effect. Um, it wasn't run in yet. And Everybody was kind of bottom hunting and uh, pit crew did an awesome job. Our first stop gained this track position. I think we came out second, ended up grabbing the lead, uh, pretty much led from then on out. Um, we had a dominant truck, I feel like, um, really, really fast uh, Mobile One Toyota Tundra. And uh, I'm just proud to be able to drive these things for Kyle, Kyle Busch Motorsports, Toyota, TRD. Um, it, it's amazing. Also should have mentioned that Ty Gibbs also won the ARCA race like three hours after the Xfinity race. So... No shocker there. His fourth win of the ARCA season, six races in, led every single lap. Again, all he does is win. Interview time. Let's throw it over to my chat with Nick Sanchez, ARCA Menard Series driver for Rev Racing. I'm not going to spoil how we are somehow weirdly connected in this Jewish geography cobweb, but it's really, really funny. I think at least. I think you guys will get a kick out of it too. We talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, Nick told me after we stopped recording that this was like the most comprehensive, extensive, deep dive interview that he's done in his racing career. So selfishly, that made me feel pretty good, but he enjoyed it. I hope you will too. His racing career started when he was young in Miami and go-karts. All of a sudden, he's going the NASCAR route with Rev Racing. Won a lot of prestigious races, won a lot of prestigious awards, and now he's killing it in ARCA off another top five finish at Charlotte. 
talked about his career aspirations, what he likes to do away from the racetrack, and of course, that funny, funny story that connects us somehow. Here's my chat with Rev Racing's Nick Sanchez. Pleasure to welcome on to the show today a good friend of mine. It's good old Nicky Bobby, or as Ruben Garcia Jr. says, Nicky Bobby. Pleasure to be on with you today, my friend. It's been a while, as we were just talking about. I haven't seen you in a long time, thanks to COVID, but you're still getting stuff done at the racetrack, running a full ARCA year this year. I know you're keeping busy, which you like. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I have not seen you in a minute. Uh, but, yeah, we've been pretty busy uh, just trying to move ahead this year, but it's it's been fun uh, thus far. Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that. Well, for the people that don't know too much about you, we're going to educate them, all right? We're going to give you the 411 on who Nick is and what he's about, how he's gotten to where he is. So Nick Sanchez is only 19 years old, and you actually started racing only seven years ago, so you've accomplished a lot in a short period of time. you got to feel pretty good about that. Oh, yeah. It's just kind of crazy how it all happened. I mean, I've only been, like you said, I've only been racing for a whole, like, seven years. Yeah. Um, I've only been racing ovals for, like, three of those so not a lot of experience but i'm just fortunate you know everything's lined up perfectly for me in my career yeah yeah and so that means that you started when you were 12 right but that's actually kind of old by industry standard as you know because you know oh yeah you got keelan harvick starting now and he's like seven eight years old i mean his dad kevin started when he was four there's a lot of drivers that start really really young and 12 is old by industry standards so what made you interested in starting a racing career down in Miami? Uh, just, you know, I've always been around like stuff with like a motor, you know, my dad's always collected like classic cars. So I always loved like fast cars. Um, I always rode like dirt bikes, ATVs growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and I just, I just liked going fast uh, and really I didn't get attached to like a certain thing in racing, like NASCAR, F1, IndyCar. I just liked right. going fast. And, you know, I was, I actually searched up how to become a NASCAR driver with my mom when I was like 12. Really? And then we just start, yeah, we, like it kind of like gave us the ranks and we saw like go-karting was like the start. So we just kind of found a go-kart team in Miami, <laughs> which luckily there's a couple cause mm -hmm. it's Miami. Um, mm -hmm. and we just went from there and then, you know, did like three and a half years in karting, uh, and then, like, at the point where I was going to move into cars, I had, like, okay, should I go formula car racing, which that's what most everyone did, or NASCAR, which I knew nothing. All I knew was, like, the Cup Series, and it was, like, how do you get there? Right. So, right. like, in that point, I found, uh, I think I was, like, looking online, like, for, like, the ladder system, and I found Legend Cars, then I found Rev Racing. That's kind of how I got into Rev. So, thanks to Google, you are where you are now. <laughs> Yes. Thank you, Google. <laughs> <laughs> well, we mentioned Miami, right? And I think you started karting actually at Homestead Miami Speedway. Is that right? Because they got a big karting facility on the property. Oh, yeah. Yep. That was the first time I've ever been in any racing vehicle, a go-kart, obviously. Yeah. Homestead Miami Speedway. So. Yeah. That's pretty cool, though, because a lot of people can't say that they started their racing career at technically a Cup Series facility. But you did. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, um, I hope I get the chance to race there maybe next year. But uh, yeah, the fact that I started there is kind of ironic. But <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty cool. 
Uh, so like, what's the facility for the go-karts like at Homestead? Cause I've, I've been there a handful of times and I think I've driven through maybe even on the go-kart track itself. Cause I know, uh, one of our mutual friends, Brad Perez, he does some go-kart racing and some Miata stuff down there too, but it's like a pretty, pretty substantial facility that goes on down there. Yeah. And I wouldn't even consider it the facility. I mean, the facility is very nice and Homestead's done a great job in uh, recent years, you know, really upgrading it. But it's the atmosphere. I mean, you get all the you get all the European like like the culture, the diversity in the racing world. Like, mm -hmm. it's like an international stage down there, and that's really what makes it what it is. And you just get very good competition. And I credit that in making me the driver that I am today because it really it wasn't like handing me a trophy. I mean, I don't think I've ever even placed on the podium there in a big race. That's how difficult it was. Wow. So, uh, yeah, I mean, the competition there was great, um, but I would say that's my favorite part of that facility, even though it's not directly a part of it. <laughs> so, like, what kind of drivers would come and cart at that track? Are we talking literally all over the world, like European carters, kids that are working their way up? I mean, I mean, we're talking uh, – me, myself, I've raced against Nelson Piquet Jr., Rubens Barrichello. I've been wow. there countless days. Tony Kanaan, Felipe Massa, Juan Pablo Montoya. Oh my God. I'm, I mean, very, oh yeah. I mean, very, very big names. Uh, the Fittipaldis, all those, all walks of life. I mean, IndyCar, yeah. F1. So you get, you get the cream of the crop there and just being able, I mean, race against someone like Rubens Barrichello and then share the track with someone like Massa. Yeah. It's, I mean, you, you learn a lot. Yeah, I thought you were talking more so like young drivers that are like working oh, their no. way up. But these are literally established vets, world champions, Indy 500 champions. And you, Nicky Bobby's racing against Tony Kanaan. Like, what? That's nuts. <laughs> I mean, I, I've never raced against Kanaan. But, you know, I mean, he's been there with Castroneves, all all those guys. Dude, um, that's I've raced crazy. against Barrichello and PK Jr. But it's, yeah. And just being able to see those guys, I was like, wow, that's, I was like, Jesus. And I get to sh share the track with him. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Did you ever like pick their brains for advice or introduce yourself? Be like, hey, I'm just this aspiring um, guy. I'm an ARCA, you know? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, this, uh, like this was all before I ever that's got true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. NASCAR. Yeah. yeah. Fair. Um, But no, I never did that. And with Barrichello, I mean, he had a, he actually kind of got into it with my friend that's also named Nick. But yeah, we were racing against him, like, like against him. So it was like pretty fierce. Uh, but yeah, I never, I don't want to say I was too shy, but I kind of was. So I just kind of kept to myself. <laughs> I but, can uh, never yeah, see just that be... out of you. <laughs> I'm sure you know me well enough where I'm oh, yeah. low-key. <laughs> Do you think, Rub did Rubens have his son there? Because I think he's, uh, he's trying to groom yeah. his son to be the next big thing. Yeah, I've raced against his son, uh, Eduardo, I think is his name. I've raced okay. against him many times, actually. Um, That's really cool. I mean, I've, I've raced against, I mean, some of the people I've raced against, you know, they're, I think Gianluca Petikoff is in Formula 2. A lot of people that have, and out of all those, I'm pretty much the only one who's gone to the NASCAR route. And then, like, someone like my friend Jet Nolan, he's also gone the NASCAR route. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, we we all kind of went our separate ways, but it 
it's kind of weird how I made it to NASCAR from that point. <laughs> yeah. I feel like you're actually kind of the last of a dying breed, so to speak, because when you see a lot of drivers working their way up now, it's, it's always they start at their local tracks and, you know, they run hobby stocks and then they run street stocks, work up to late model, stuff like that. You don't see a ton of go-karting that starts their path to NASCAR specifically because obviously go-karting, open wheel, you want to go into Formula One or IndyCar, open wheel. That's kind of the route that they take. But, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't really think that we see a lot of developmental drivers starting out in go-karts and then being, okay, I want to go to NASCAR. I mean, I know that obviously a lot of NASCAR drivers now, and especially developmental ones, they race at GoPro all the time. They love racing in go-karts. They all say that that's some of the most fun they have behind the wheel. But in terms of actually getting started, I feel like we don't see a lot of that. Do you agree? Oh, no, I 100% agree. Because, like, like, when you're at that stage in Cardian, at least being from Miami, there's, like, I think the closest short track that they raced, like, anything NASCAR-related, whether it be a modified or a late model, is, like, six hours away in, like, yeah. uh, central Florida. So, like, there's no, absolutely no, I don't even know what, like, a short track i don't even know what a short track was to be totally honest like i was yeah. like oh it's short tracks martinsville or bristol but there's like no ladder system from like go-karts to nascar whatsoever right. Uh, right. at least where i was from i mean i guess if you like grow up racing and gopro here it's a little more it's a little easier because you have the whole nascar community um but as far as like i always tell people like even though i technically did <laughs> live in the united states in miami it was like such a European feel like people would come from all over the world. Uh, it wasn't like a local race. So I didn't have any correlation in NASCAR. So it's kind of weird that I found my way here. I still can't believe it. Yeah, no, that, 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 that's a really good point. And I don't know. I feel like I'm, I know that you have a really big passion for formula one. And I know you look up to a couple guys. We'll get to that a little bit later. When you were working your way in the go-kart scene, did you have aspirations of going F1 racing or open wheel, or were you kind of just doing everything as it came since you didn't really know any better? Um, I mean, obviously, I was kind of doing everything as it came because I really, truthfully, <laughs> did not know any better, but I think I had more of like the IndyCar ladder system in mind. F1 was a little much because I knew like I was literally going to have to move to Europe. And, like, yeah live there <laughs> that's literally um, a different world yeah. yeah oh yeah literally a different world which i know my my parents wouldn't i mean they love europe so i don't know i don't know how that would have worked out <laughs> but uh i think i had more of the indycar ladder system in mind like usf 2000 uh, pro mazda and indy lights mm -hmm. and so on and so forth but it was like i always kind of loved nascar and i knew not like i said i knew nothing about it did not know a single person that has ever raced in NASCAR or even tried to. So it was kind of like the unknown, but I think that's kind of what attracted me in. And I think premier series in America is NASCAR, no doubt. Yeah, for sure. Well, you hopped on Google with your parents. You saw Rev Racing, Drive for Diversity program, said, what the hell, let's apply. And boom, you get accepted. You start working your way up in that specific sphere um, legends, late models, wheel and all American series, the whole nine yards. But let's start at the beginning with that process. When you apply to the drive for diversity program, 
tell us what the process is like. Is it literally just an application, like if you're applying to college or school or something? And then once you got accepted, were you surprised? Were you excited? How was the feeling then? Um, well, I think the difference between now and then, their development process wasn't established. So like they had legend cars, but they I don't want to say they didn't take it serious, but it was kind of like it was unsuccessful for a couple year couple years. So they didn't even have a combine. I applied and the application is pretty in detail. Like you need to have references, my whole racing resume, uh, videos, a lot of media stuff, but a lot of mm -hmm. like credibility, you know, like references from my team, you know, I had like the, the owner of the Homestead cart track and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, and I kind of applied, I'd actually brought my application here in person because we were vacationing mm -hmm. in North Carolina that summer and I handed Good it move. to Jefferson. Good move, shows initiative. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, I met Jefferson for the first time that day, uh, at Rev. Uh, and it, it was, it was kind of like a quick application. I mean, like not a quick application, like a quick acceptance. Cause I think I was one of yeah. like four people who applied for the youth. Uh, but pretty much I know like Rev's fully funded now, but that summer in legend cars, even though I was driving for Rev, I did, my parents did fund me for that summer in legend cars. But I think, that was probably the best money ever spent in racing because that eventually led me. Uh, I think we did, I think we finished fourth or fifth in the points that year in the summer shootout uh, racing again. I think Sam Ayer, I think I was racing against him for most of the time, but yeah. we put in a pretty good performance for my first time in ovals. And then eventually I made my way. In, I think it was October, October of 2017. I made my way into the big combine with the uh, chase Ruben, Ryan Vargas, and then from there, I got accepted into the only late model spot uh, on Rev Racing. And then that was pretty much my first experience on the actual team living here. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So we got the timeline established now. So let's go up to that next step where you get into late models and you're running these full-bodied stock cars. You're going faster. You've discovered short tracks outside of Martinsville and Bristol. And you're like, wow, there's a lot of these down in the southeast and you won these these late model races late in the going in in your season there so take me back to your first start in a late model to your first win in a late model what did you learn for that whole process and what were the feelings from when you first strapped in and said what did i just get myself into to finally winning a race and, and climbing the mountain yeah i mean my late model career was like expedited because i most people get testing uh, I think I'd driven a late model twice before uh, my first race. And I was the only late model specific driver on Rev, but my first race was with Ryan, Chase, and Ruben, so all four of us. And it was at Langley, and I think it was it was like the prelude to the Denny Hamlin showdown. So my first race, mm. my first ever time in a Rev late model, I think there was like 30 cars. Wow. And we had a pretty good showing. I think we finished 12th, and we wrecked the second time uh along with everyone else but my second race like i said i've really gotten thrown out there my second race was with denny hamlin kyle bush at the showdown so oh once again God. i was just i think brett moffitt was in it i was literally thrown out into like the abyss and just okay learn <laughs> so i that year i think i only did like six or seven late model races but i think the biggest development for me that year i went to every single arca race or canon east at the time 
and really learned the ropes for the big cars while still doing little late model stuff. But I don't want to say they didn't take it serious, but I was on the back burner since it did have a three uh, car K and N East team. And then the next year is when like, is when stuff really started to kickstart for me. I think I did 22 late model races. So uh, almost four times the amount. My first race, I got pulled Myrtle beach and then it took a lot of learning and a lot of tough lessons for me to get my first win. I think that year I finished second 10 times. Like it was ridiculous. And third, probably I remember another you had a streak five times. Ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I lost the race in every possible way. You could lose one, <laughs> but that summer, I think, uh, June 29th, I want to say I got my first win at Myrtle beach. And then that point on, it was kind of like, uh, it was just, it was just a lot more consistent and I put myself in a lot better position feeling like, you know, that was my first ever win in a stock car at all. So that was a big confidence booster. And then I think a month before that, I actually got my first K and East start at South Boston. I'm sure you remember. That's right. Yes, uh, I do. <laughs> uh, got a couple pulls that year, but then the final race, I think it was Langley September 28th. That was my final late model race. Uh, still to this day, my final one. And I got the win there. So I think looking back on that season, I probably should have had truthfully 10 wins if I had the experience and confidence that I had now. But uh, that season taught me a lot, probably the most uh, most important season of my whole racing career. I guess looking back on it now, though, having little to no experience before you actually got in race cars on the racetrack during actual races and finishing how you did and winning the amount of races that you did, you got to feel pretty proud of yourself for, for doing what you did with the amount of experience you had going in. Because looking at the stats, as you said, you should have had more wins, but the fact that you were running where you were and got the wins that you did, that's a testament to your skill, I would say. No, I appreciate that. And I feel like um, I feel like that year the most important thing was I would I was racing against the cream of the crop, you know, Lee Pulliam, mm -hmm. uh, Peyton Sellers, Philip Morris, you know, Sam Yarborough, you know, even Josh Berry. So I was learning a lot from very experienced guys. And, you know, it wasn't like I was cherry picking at Hickory. Uh, <laughs> and I did race there a couple times, but you know, every race I went to, I got a, a hard lesson from some, one of those good guys. And I feel like mm -hmm. I'd much rather get that hard lesson than just, you know, winning in a 15 car field. But, uh, I think that that really helped set me straight in this world of stock car racing. Let's go back to this Denny Hamlin short track showdown because this is your second ever race in a late model and you're against Denny, Kyle, Moffitt, whoever else is in the field. I'm going to have to go back and look at this field. Um, no disrespect to you. I assume you probably got lapped in this race or something by these guys. No? Really? No. Um, I got, I mean, I qualified, there was, it was like a 35 car field. I remember I qualified 19. Moffat actually wow. qualified 20th. Um, and Look at you, the thing Nikki is, Bobby. I, I had speed, but I was like a I was like a loose cannon. Like I'm pretty <laughs> sure I, I, I actually like hit the wall like four times just driving the piss out of it. Uh, <laughs> but eventually I almost made it in the top 10, and it was lap 151 where I got into a big wreck <laughs> with a bunch of other people. But I don't – I'd never got lapped. Uh surprisingly it, i was just like one of those loose cannons where i was like oh boy someone tell him to like calm down 
<laughs> but uh, you remember yeah. it so vividly, though. Like lap oh, one fifty one, yeah. qualified nineteen. Race car drivers never forget. No, um, never. And I, I'll always remember that race because that was, even though the result. I mean, I ended up like. I mean, the car was pretty torn up. Yeah. But I remember I was just happy that I didn't get lapped. Like you said, I was just happy that I was in contention for something. Yeah. Even though I was not in contention for the win. <laughs> well, I guess I should have given you more credit. I just assume when you're racing against champions and unbelievable accomplished cup guys like that, and you're here in your second ever late model start, you would have been waxed by him. But now nah, you're holding your own. So good for you. That must have been crazy. You're on the same track with Rowdy, Denny, Moffitt. That's nuts. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, by by no means that I ever contend with Denny and Kyle. I mean, they were – Right, right. I, I don't even see them, but just the fact that I was able to kind of, like, just hold my position and just – That's good. <laughs> learn. Uh, it was definitely – I mean, I don't even know what – I had no expectations whatsoever. I remember just my team was proud of me for qualifying 19th. I was like, sure, I'll take it. <laughs> Well, I'm proud of you for not falling a lap down, so so good yes. job on you for that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you mentioned South Boston. Uh, you made your first K&N start there. I still call it K&N. Arca East, technically now. Yeah. yeah. Put a dollar in the swear jar, whatever. Yeah. Man. Um, that was a doubleheader weekend, though. That Was that the weekend where it rained and the race got postponed to the Monday? Yep, that yep. was terrible. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah. I remember that because... Because Ruben, your teammate at the time, had to fly to Mexico because he was running to a full race. peak schedule. And Colin Garrett filled in the six car for the last like 80 laps of the second race. You remember that? I definitely remember that night. That was crazy. Yeah, that was nuts. Well, so you in the first race, your first K&N race. And then by, by virtue of however they were doing the qualifying format for that specific weekend... You start on the pole for the second race. Yeah. And I'll, I'm thinking I'll, to myself, when I wake up that morning, I'm like, oh, man. Uh, look, I love Nikki, but I don't know how turn one's going to go here. <laughs> um. Well, like, a lot of people thought, oh, yeah, he's just doing that because he wanted to start on pole. But I was running Chase's backup car in the first race. So, mm -hmm. like, I couldn't – they told me, like, look, what we're going to do is we're going to – you're going to qualify. Just go out and qualify. We're going to drop to the back and you're literally going to run laps just to like run laps, but you're not going to race with anyone. Cause you like, if you wrecked that car, he was going to need to use it since he was in the points battle. Essentially so, you were just practicing. Yeah. I was just practicing and they taped me up. Uh, I did a, I did a mock-up lap. They were like, screw it, put him on pole. I was like, sure. I don't care. Um, <laughs> and we led, I think I led 25 laps in that first race or in the second race. Yeah. Um, it was a little sketchy at times. I think I, I definitely adored a bunch of people. I mean, mind you, I, I did not fit in the car. I had, I had myself like wedged in there. So I was just driving. I could barely see over the wheel. Yeah. Uh, but I think obviously in the daytime, I got my, I got my butt whooped. Uh, I did not know how to set up that car for day racing. Like, I feel like I tried to dial myself in a lot for that night for that second twin. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, I think like you said, the rain delay came and then I got lapped. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't get lapped in the Denny Hamlin short track showdown. It just took you yeah. to your first K and N race. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. At least I got a hard lesson there. Well, I know that you also do not like day races. You said, uh, and I actually just listened to this interview on arca racing.com. You quote 200% 
prefer night racing and you think every race should be at night. So can you tell us why? Because I disagree. I don't know. It's, it's something, at least in the driver's seat, like the, the lights, it's cool. Um, I feel like everything gets, gets exi- yeah, it gets you going. It's definitely a lot cooler in the race car, which I do not mind. Um, <laughs> you're from Miami. You are, should be used to that. True. No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> I should. Um, <laughs> the speeds are higher. You have more grip. And I don't know. It's something about night racing, leaving the track at night. It's cool. Yeah. Day racing, it feels like night racing, like you feel like, okay, by the end of the night, like you're just, you, you feel content with whatever you did. If you wrecked, if you won, whatever, you're fine with it. The day, like you kind of finish and you're just like, I don't know. I just feel like many times I'm a little more let down in a day race because I still have like the rest of the day or rest of the afternoon. But I don't know. I've just always been a night racing person. Okay. Well, I'll allow that. I think you need to get your uh, get your fitness up or something. Go back to Miami and train in the humidity oh, for yeah. like a month or something. Yeah. No, it's not that I can't handle it. I mean, I have it pretty rough right now because I don't. I'm probably. I guarantee I'm the only ARCA driver, or maybe any of those drivers in the top three or top four series that do not mm-hmm. run with a helmet fan or a water bottle. So what? It, I'm, oh yeah. Like you why? See, like. My team just hasn't put one in for whatever reason. They, you don't get thirsty. I mean, I'll have a sip of water under like a caution if yeah. like, they hand it to me. But I don't even think it's the water. Like I don't have like Daytona, Talladega, Kansas, Charlotte. When you have that right side window, I have absolutely zero circulation because like yeah, it's pretty it's pretty rough in there. Um, but I make who do we gotta it. talk to to get you some water or a, or a, what? yeah this is terrible i'm putting i'm putting in a water bottle for this weekend actually it's right here i mean there you go yeah fancy fancy uh and it's not necessarily because i need it it's more of like i don't know sometimes i it's like a peace of mind thing you know just have a little sip of water i could do without it but it doesn't hurt to have it but yeah i I mean i would say talladega under those red flags in that day race it was i mean it was like a freaking oven in there it was it was pretty bad yeah, <laughs> I do not envy you with that. Wow. All right, let, let's get back to the topic at hand. So we've talked about your career in go-karts, applying to the Drive for Diversity program, late models, legend cars, K&N. Now you're obviously running full-time ARCA, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But in between all of this, you received a very prestigious award. You won the Wendell Scott Trailblazer Award in 2019. And I know that meant a lot to you. A lot of people before you had won that have been very accomplished. And obviously, anything associated with the name Wendell Scott in racing, obviously, is a huge, huge honor. You got to meet his family, and you were honored at the awards ceremony. That must have been a pretty cool time for you and a really nice honor. Oh, no. Uh, No doubt. Out of all the wins and polls I got that year, I think that that was the most prestigious award, I think, to this day I've ever received in racing. Um, knowing who won it before me and the the requirements to win that award, you know, it wasn't. I know it was a board that selected you, I believe, uh, on the diversity and inclusion inclusion council. But it was also based mm-hmm. on performance uh, and how you did on track. And I think those two things combined really made it special. And definitely having to do that speech on stage, I don't want to. I think that was like. I don't know. That was like kind of like what set me straight in the world of media. Cause before then, dude, like, you were so nervous. 
Oh, I, yeah. I, I remember. Like, I was like go. giving you a pep talk. I'm like, dude, you're fine. It's not a big deal. You were freaking out big time. Yeah. I mean, and I know like in years prior, I know uh, Ryan Vargas, he gave like actual speeches, but this time it was like, it was like kind of just like a thank you, but you still obviously, you couldn't just say thank you for the award and walk off. So I had to give like, I think it was like a 15 second little speech that I memorized. And I remember for like a whole week, I wouldn't like think of anything else but that verse. Uh, (laughs) But luckily I did not screw that up. And I feel like after that, it definitely gave me the confidence to talk to you today on a podcast. <laughs> hey, well, good yeah. job on that. It was good. You did. You did well. It was short. It was sweet, but it was good. That. Got the point across. It was good. So we did well. Um, yes. Let, before we get to another event that happened that night, which is a hilarious instance of Jewish geography between our two families, which yes. is very funny. Um, we'll get to that later. But while we're on the topic of Rev and, and everything going on with there. I want to get your perspective on being a part of that organization because it is a big deal. You look at all the drivers that have come through that stable in the past few years, not even the past few, the last decade or so since the program has been in action. There is a ton of talent, but the, there is also a ton of turnover. And you mentioned you came over with Chase Cabry, Ruben Garcia Jr., Ryan Vargas. All three are no longer with the program. Now you got LeVar Scott, Raja Karuth, Isarello Robusto. Uh, I'm forgetting a few names, obviously, but you guys now have a great stable of drivers. You have had a great stable of drivers. And before you were even there, before you probably even thought about applying, you had guys like Kyle Larson and Bubba Wallace and other drivers that were in the program as well. What is it like being a part of a program that has a lot of promise, a lot of talent, a lot of resources, but also has a lot of turnover? So even when you make these relationships with drivers as teammates or you're leaning on them and gaining information, you know that maybe in a year, six months, something like that, they could be gone and their time could be done. Um, yeah, no, uh, Rev, you know, I, I couldn't find a better, I couldn't have, I couldn't think of a better team to be associated with as far as development and where I came from. Um, sure. The drive for diversity, the whole program is, it's really set on bringing diversity into NASCAR and they're doing a great job on that. But really Max Siegel, uh, the owner of Rev Racing and really he's the brains and the, obviously he's my, he's my boss. Uh, he mm-hmm. really has every year I've seen it firsthand put more and more and more in this program. And he's really grown it from, you know, a subpar late model team and just arc East to now. I mean, we're, we're very close to competing for wins at big yeah. tracks like Talladega and Charlotte. Um, and, you know, the steps he's taken from the business side of it has really helped me. Um, but as far as to- turnover stuff, I know exactly what you're talking about there. But I would say when I got in, I experienced a major shift in how Rev approached each year's selection of drivers. Like, I remember when I got in, uh, they just chosen Ryan, but they did a three-day combine and Ryan came from late models in the k East. Mm-hmm. And what she did very good at, uh, and you know, like I think a year or two prior, they just took chase from uh, limited late models to Archie East. And, you know, as every year's combine went on, they didn't do that. They focused on bringing in a young driver in legend cars or late models in, uh, cultivating them to eventually take the Arca, Arca East spot or Arca Menard series gotcha. spot. Um, you know, so the culture has changed, I feel like, and, you know, 
you no longer go to a combine looking for ARCA drivers. You go to the combine looking for uh, legend car drivers to eventually teach them the ropes. And I feel like that's what they did with me. And it definitely helped my career because I wasn't thrown into the ARCA spot and, you know, oh, go perform. He's never raced an oval. Um, right. I had I had years to work on myself, uh, work on the oval racing, work on my craft uh, to eventually where when I got to that ARCA spot, I wasn't I wasn't uh, washed up the year later. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and I, I would say the one thing I have that, you know, obviously Chase and Ruben, they didn't have this youth. I mean, I am 19. Uh, I think Chase's first year in ARCA East, I'm pretty sure he was like 20. Um, and this is my second year. So I definitely have that on my side. You know, I'm not aging out in that way. Mm-hmm. But uh, Rev's whole thought process and Max's thought process behind what, like, the steps a driver should take, they've all been immensely improved. And that's why you see, you know, I'm the top of the team, I guess you could say, at 19. And, you know, you have someone like Raja yeah. behind me who he wasn't thrown in that position. He was, you know, he did accelerate very fast like I did. Yeah, But, you know, he's had time to prove himself in late models. He's learned, and now he's winning in late models, and he's doing very good in Arca East. And then, you know, you have drivers like LeVar, Regina, Isabella. Right. They're all learning late models um, eventually to take the Arca spot. So I think that's the biggest thing they've been doing, and it's it's working, definitely. Yeah, no, I appreciate you sharing that uh, process because from the outside, you don't you don't see all that. You kind of see it from afar, and you're saying, okay, well, instead of just going straight from Legends to Arca, you know, now there's a program in place to actually have years regimented, honing your craft, and 100%. doing all these different things. So it makes sense. But I wanted to ask about the turnover thing because it, I always had these conversations with Chase and Ruben. I guess it was probably 2018, 2019 because they were on the older side, even though they were still really young in terms of being in the rev program. And, you know, it was always this, it wasn't awkward for them, but it was this awkward thing where it was like, well, you know, like if you don't really win a lot of races this year, I mean, regardless of even if you do win the championship, you're probably done with rev after this year, just because you're old. You know what I mean? Yeah. But they're 22 and Ruben was like 20, 23, 24, something like that. So it's always this weird thing. Um, But I appreciate you sharing that. So there's a little more clarity to it. No, yeah, yeah. I, I can understand from the outside looking in, it's a little, it's yeah. hard to like gauge everything. Right, right. Well, you guys mentioned, I mean, you guys upgraded your stuff this year. I don't even know why it didn't click for me, but you guys switched manufacturers to Chevrolet. Um, there's a lot of different things that happen. I mean, you changed motors to an Ilmore motor, I think. Uh, yeah. You're running a full Arca Menard series schedule. I think for the first time in Rev Racing's history, the full 20 race schedule there's a lot of good changes that have happened in terms of benefiting you as the driver because your performance has clearly seen an uptick. I'm curious, was was the full-time ARCA move, was that a, a, a decision that came from you and you wanted to do that? Was it something that Max and the team wanted to do? Was it a mutual thing? Because that is a big, big step. It was, it was definitely a mutual agreement. Um, you know, our team director, Matt Booker, uh, definitely took the steps to present it to someone like a team leader like max eagle um but then you know also i was told like not are you ready but here's our plan and not kind of what do you think because no duh i'm gonna say yeah <laughs> but uh right, you right. know you know i just kind of i was like their person in the whole process to make all these steps because there's so many firsts for this team you know i was telling i was telling everyone this a couple of days ago i'm pretty sure 
out of like the 20 races, 17 of those uh, tracks, they're new tracks for us as a yeah. team. So we do not have any data, nothing. Um, not so, you as a driver, you as an entire team. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, we obviously have people with experience at those tracks, but you know, that was many course, years ago, yeah. but you know, as far as directly notes from this team, uh, nothing. So right. every track we go to is a learning experience and you know, it's uh, team owner Max Eagle's first time racing at Daytona, Talladega, Charlotte. So I know for his, from his point of view, seeing his team race on those big circuits has to be awesome. Um, but also, you know, equipment standpoint, we purchased some cars from Brett Holmes Racing. We got a fleet of new Ilmore engines. Um, we just upgraded our inventory. And, you know, we're also trying to work on manufacturer deals, uh, Chevy. But, you know, all those things combined, I think, I mean, you saw it in Charlotte. And I've been saying this the whole year. I mean, we've had really crappy luck. You <laughs> uh, have. You have. We've had really bad luck. But I think, you know, a race like Charlotte what we could do uh when we kind of hit all our marks and even in that race i feel like we still had room to maximize there at the end um but it i think it's really definitely showing on the track and uh i think the best is yet to come to the team well you're coming off of another top five finish at charlotte as we mentioned the first two races of the year i mean you want to talk about rough and not your fault just bad luck wrong place wrong time torn up race cars that was you you were on the hooker, DNFs the first two races, but once you got the bad luck off your guys' side and you started hitting your stride, top 10 and I think every single race since, top five at Charlotte this past weekend, uh, you got a career best third place finish a few weeks ago, so you guys really seem to be hitting your stride at this point in the season. Oh no, 100%. Um, still, I mean, we still have some luck that needs to be on our side. You know, Charlotte, we should have finished second, we finished fifth, but yeah. that's just strategy. Yeah. Um, I know I think Kansas, we had a left rear go down or something like that. But I think the most important thing that stands out to me, and I think everyone else is the performance, you know, we're, we're in contention. Um, every week we're getting better. And as a driver, that's all you could ask for. I know we're not just going to gain speed overnight to beat the 18. It's cultivated over the year, over a year. And, you know, you have to be in that opportunity in second or third to pounce, uh, if something goes wrong for him. So, uh, we're definitely moving in the right direction. I want to ask about Ty Gibbs because, I mean, what he's doing is nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, and what I always say is, like, you know, he's in the best equipment by far in Xfinity and in ARCA, uh, but he wins a lot, and he leads every lap a lot. So it's one thing to say, oh, he's this rich, spoiled kid, whatever, just had everything handed to him. It's like, okay, partially true, he'll admit that, but he wins, and he takes care of business. As somebody that is racing against him week in and week out, and you know that your team's good. You know that you as a driver are capable and good. But when you see Ty Gibbs race against you and you just, you were racing against him at Charlotte. I mean, you took the lead briefly, but that car and he as a talent is just so, so good. What is it like racing against him in ARCA specifically? Is it frustrating? Are you in awe when you're just like, my God, how... How is this duo so unbelievable? What are the feelings behind the wheel for you when you're racing against him? Um, Yeah, I wouldn't consider him being I, – I feel like running second is frustrating personally, whoever it may be too. Um, yeah, no doubt. I mean, he's a really, really, really talented driver, uh, a lot of experience. And, you know, obviously his Arca car is very fast. Um, yeah. But, you know, I do have a lot of respect for him as a driver. But also, you know, I don't 
feel bad when, you know, that Charlotte race, uh, we were running second to him when he just beat all the Xfinity guys two hours before. So yeah. like me running second to him, I was like, you know, yeah, that's how everyone felt in the Xfinity race. So I didn't feel yeah. that crappy, but yeah, <laughs> I mean, he, his car is classes of the field, but he definitely, I mean, you've seen many people in that 18 car and they haven't been able to yeah. win, but he, every week he wins. So I think it's really impressive what he does and the confidence he has behind the wheel. Um, but you know, I just got to keep chasing him and just got to keep working, uh, to maybe eventually getting the win, uh, against them. But yeah, I mean, you know, I guess the good part is he wins in Xfinity. So, you know, it's not like someone could come to, Oh yeah, you're racing. Oh he, yeah. He's, he's an Arca, you know, he's not accomplished. No, he's yeah. beating everyone in Xfinity, including cup right. drivers. So, uh, I don't think he's just an issue in the Arca series. Uh, uh-uh. he's, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it is what it is, but I'd much rather run second to him than other people. Oh yeah, no doubt. He's going to be an issue for years to come. And so will you. So I read somewhere that you have some interesting racing role models for interesting reasons on the formula one side is it charles or charles leclerc leclerc whatever charles leclerc (laughs) and uh and max verstappen two two interesting drivers two different driving styles and you have them as role models for interesting reasons can you share why um yeah i mean obviously max i mean they're both very fast but max is just like on it he's on his game and he's aggressive um I feel like I'm that way in some sense because I just want to go get it. And then, like, someone like Charles, he, like, I feel like he never, like, he always puts the blame on himself. And he always, and like, even if he gets pulled, oh, I could do better, I could do better. And I feel like I'm also that way in some sense because every session I do tell my team, look, I left, I left some in the line, just so you know that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, those two are definitely the ones, I think, in current F1 that I look up to the most. And just, I mean, driving as a whole. Yeah, yeah. I remember clear as day. I think it was Baku two years ago, something like that. Um, Shal was on a qualifying run, and uh, he was going to get pulled, but then he crashed. And it was like a really tight corner, and he crashed. And he came over the ready. He was just, I am stupid. I am stupid. And that, like, sticks in my head for some reason. That's, like, such uh, a memeable moment, too. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I think that's the start of it all. That was funny. Yeah, yeah, it was. Well, that, those are two interesting drivers. Uh, there are no Lewis Hamilton. I know you said you want to be him for a day uh, on that yeah, I mean, racing thing. I mean, someone like, I mean, Lewis isn't a bad role model too, but. No uh, explanation as far as, needed, yeah. No explanation needed. It's just it is yeah. what it is. I hear you on that. All right. Um, big time question here. So. Are you ready to sell me a house? I know I just moved, but I mean, you can sell me a house because you literally yes. are licensed to do so. Yes. Um, only in Florida, North Carolina. So if you want to move to Charlotte, okay. I'll happily get your mortgage. Um, but yeah, okay. I mean, a lot of people think I'm a realtor. I don't know how many people like, oh, hey, you know, uh, oh, are you like a realtor? He's like a real estate agent. I'm like, no, I do mortgages. I do the financing. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Um I know it's surprising, but it's something that I enjoy. I don't know why. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I know. It, I don't know many people that are in this industry, uh, also being a driver. But okay, so for somebody really dumb like me who knows nothing about the industry, what's the difference between like 
What, well, what's what's your official title? Like, what's the title that you have? Uh, technically, I'm a loan uh, a loan officer. That's more of like the inside term, but really, I'm I'm a ah, a mortgage broker. Okay, so what's the difference between a mortgage broker and a realtor? Because I don't know. So, like a realtor, like you, they obviously take you around finding different properties. Um, they they put offers for you. They negotiate on your behalf. Um, me myself. I'm behind the scenes. So like the realtor, like, okay, you put a contract in a house and then either the borrower, the realtor will come to me and they'll say, okay, here's all my qualifying info. Uh, I take application. I, you know, some cases I do a pre-qualification. So they have that letter in hand, but I'm pretty much the whole financing. I'm the whole financing guru behind it. So I take all their info, pay stubs, W2s, credit score, all that good, all that fun stuff. And then I fun. go uh, on their behalf, I go shop around at different lenders to see which what's the all best right. rate and what's the best term I could get. Uh, and obviously everyone's different. So, you know, sometimes you want to go to this lender. Sometimes you want to go to that lender. So yeah, I'm a broker for the, the borrowers. Gotcha. Okay. So again, people, Nick's doing this all at 19 years old. I don't know what you were doing when you were 19, but you were not getting ready to sell some houses in Florida and North Carolina only, reading the fine print. Um, and I, the article that was posted about you in Forbes by Greg Engel, it was really interesting. Um, I mean, you picked this up during quarantine. You were bored. You're like, eh, why not? Might as well do this. Your mom's been in the business for close to 30 years, so she helped you out with it. Your mom's great. We love her. Um, yes. And I found something interesting too. You know, you said that if racing doesn't work out, this can be something that you can fall back on. And that way, all your eggs are not in one basket. So I personally think that's very smart, especially from somebody that's as young as you are, that's as ambitious as you are. And I mean, you're good behind the wheel. So hopefully, racing does work out. But if it doesn't, this is something to fall back on. But there are some people out there that will say, Oh, he's doing this because he wants something to fall back on. That means he's not committed. That means he's not, you know, showing the full drive 100%. You know there are those people out there. No, what 100%. do you say to those people? Um, I think it's the opposite. I think, you know, if you're fully committed and racing is your only, like, I mean, you literally have nothing else to fall back on. I mean, I, mean, I don't know. You can, go to, you can go work at a supermarket. It's on you. But, <laughs> um. <laughs> You know, having something that I could immediately, I mean, that I actively do while I race and that in the event that I don't race anymore, I could literally like, I mean, not even like 20 minutes after just, okay, start my other job. Um, I think yeah. having that mindset in my head, it allows me to take a little more risk while racing. I'm not necessarily on the track, but in how I manage the whole racing thing, you know, as far as wanting to move up to different series um, and risk versus reward, I feel like I have that in my pocket to do a little more. Um, but also, you know, even if I do make a career racing and make it to cup and win races and championships, hopefully, um, this is still something that I'm not, I'm not just going to throw away. I mean, I want to make a business out of it and I want to scale it even bigger with my opportunity. Like you generally like it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like this is something that regardless of where I go in my career, you know, even though I might not go out and do loans on, like personally for people, um, own a company, create a company and have people that work for me that do that and kind of be the brains behind it. So either way, I plan on being in this business, uh, either as a mortgage broker or as a, the owner of a mortgage company. 
That's really smart. And, and you got a good head on your shoulders to do it. Good support system as well. And as you mentioned, you think it goes the opposite way, which I think is looking at it in a nice different sphere as well. And I know you said in that same article, you know, doing this specific uh, activity helps you on the racetrack and off of it in terms of brokering sponsorship, gaining deals, knowing how to speak to people corporately, personally, all those different type of things. And if you get to where you want to go, you know, doing this on the side could help you potentially get a ride because you wouldn't command a big time salary considering that you would be making money on the side doing this other thing. So in a way, looking at it from that perspective, this helps you on the racetrack. Oh yeah, no, a hundred percent. I mean, I don't, I don't want to race and I don't race because of the paycheck or the money. Um, I'd race mm-hmm. because I like to, and I just enjoy it truthfully. Um, going and competing every week. That's, it's all like a wish for in a competitive car. Yeah. All right. I've buried the lead here. We've been talking for almost an hour. I thank you for your time. It's been really fun. Um, but one of the last things I want to talk about, because I hope the listeners like get a kick out of this as much as we did, but Nick's grandmother taught my dad and his sister at school in Miami growing up. You want to talk about a small world. And when I when we found out this information, I don't know. Do you remember when and how we found this out? I think because I was like, oh, you're from Miami. My dad grew up there and like, oh, yeah, th- this is where they were from and something like that. And then we figured out that your grandma taught them at the same school. Yeah. Yeah. And I think like at least where we found out like the gist of it, um, it was at the awards banquet in 2019. You were there, correct? You were there, right? Yeah, I was. It was, I was. there. And you met That's when I met your grandma. You got talking. Yeah. Yeah. And I, it was. It's such a small world. I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like when I when I when <laughs> she told me that, I was like, "What the hell?" I mean, no way. The Jewish community. I don't know. <laughs> I know, dude. Jewish geography. It never fails. Jewish never. geography never fails. Oh yeah, it's amazing how small the world is. I know, I know. On a, kind of like a serious note, though. So I mean, we mentioned Jewish geography, kind of in jest and stuff. But I mean, you're a Cuban American. Uh, you're in the Drive for Diversity program, and you have some Jewish heritage to you as well. Uh, there's not a lot of Jews in NASCAR. I can say that for a fact. And uh, you know, I mean, you don't like flaunt it from the rooftops, but you are partly yeah. Jewish. Uh, so like, that's another. You know, I guess you could say variable to your Drive for Diversity application. And also just you as a person makes you a little bit more unique. There's not a lot of Jews in NASCAR, especially behind the wheel. The only other one that I can think of is Alon Day, and he's in the Euro series. Yeah. No, 100%. Uh, yeah. I don't I don't think I know of another person other than you in the NASCAR community that celebrates Hanukkah. I know we always send our, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, our Passover picks and our uh, Hanukkah yep. picks. Um, yeah. But yeah well, I, I don't, you uh you you got Chase hip to Lockies, and he was like, "Yeah, I like him with ketchup." And I was like, "No, you cannot put ketchup on him." Applesauce. Um. Yes. Yeah, I actually got him to. I had him over for one of the nights in Hanukkah, and you know, my grandma yeah. cooking all you know the brisket, the lockus, mm-hmm. uh, and he loved all of it, which is, um, I thought it was weird because I was not expecting that. But uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I I don't. I don't know of anyone else other than you. Look at us. Just two Jews killing it in the NASCAR world. Now yeah. we're talking on a podcast. Trying. Look at us go. I know. Look I still got to get over there for uh, to try your grandma's latkes and brisket because my grandma and my dad, they make killer latkes and brisket. But I mean, at this, point in our guy, at this point in our relationship, 
like with this Jewish geography we got going on, we need to get yeah, both our families to come together and like tell stories about them in school together. That would be fun. That would be awesome. We definitely, uh, maybe this year, especially with COVID relaxing, we could do that. Yeah, I'm down. I'm down. I'm As down I was too. telling you before we started recording, uh, at the point of this recording, I'm headed to Miami in two days. So I'll hold down the fort for you. I'll hold down the fort. I'll give you a list of people to say hi to on my behalf. <laughs> please do. Yeah. Please do. All right. A uh, couple more things before I let you run. The rest of the season for ARCA, we're, we're starting this weekend at Mid-Ohio. It's a road course. Um, Ty Gibbs is going to be tough to beat anywhere, but a road course could be an equalizer to a certain extent. Are you excited for a road course race at Mid-Ohio? And w- what do you think your expectations and goals are for this weekend specifically? Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, I think it's weird for me because I've never raced any any full-bodied car on a road course, but I have more road racing experience in a go-kart than an oval experience. And it's like, hmm. I don't know, it's kind of like a double-edged sword. Like I'm going back to something I know so well and I don't even have to think about, but then again, right. it's a whole different dynamic. So personally, I am so excited for Friday. I can barely like sit still. Um, the closer I, the closer I get, the more I like, you know, I sit in my car, I got like the road course shifter and all the fun yeah. stuff. Um, and you know, um, uh, people like, uh, Austin Sindrick has been giving me good tips on mid Ohio. So just to have people like that to lean on, um, it makes me feel a lot more confident going in the weekend. And how about the rest of the season? I know that you're looking forward to some more intermediate tracks because I know you like to go fast and you like that grip, especially in the nighttime. Um, oh, yeah. any specific tracks you're looking forward to on the rest of the schedule specifically? Um, I, I wouldn't, if, if I would circle a track, I feel like I'd be lying. Um, you know, we have such a broad schedule between Pocono, Michigan, Bristol, Iowa. We have dirt in there. We have Watkins Glen later on yeah. Kansas at the end. Of, I mean, we have such a wide variety of tracks. Uh, and I think that suits my driving style the best, you know, just being able to not go to the same place twice. Um, yeah. I think the whole schedule works in our favor personally. So uh, I don't think I'm breaking any news to you here, but uh, Ty is going to be tough to beat for the championship. I think uh, anybody with two eyes and a brain can figure that out. So are the goals to potentially get a runner up in the championship? I think you're also running for rookie of the year technically, right? So are the goals still to get rookie of the year, potentially finish high up in the standings and maybe win a race? No, obviously I think the biggest thing in my radar right now is winning a race. Um, I think every race that goes by our chances are higher and higher. Um, mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, we are far back in the championship due to some issues, but we still, have, I mean, we still have 14 more races to go. So that's, that's a freaking that's a lot of races. So, yeah. I mean, anything <laughs> could happen. Um, that's the way I look at it. Anything could happen. And four races down the line, we could be 10 points away from the lead. Um, I don't know. Right. So uh, just got to keep your head down and, you know, never, never count yourself out. Never give up. That's what we do here. Last question. Uh, Ruben Garcia Jr. He gave you the nickname Nicky Bobby, or as as I mentioned, as he says, Nicky Bobby. Do you like that nickname? Do you have another nickname? What do we think of it? Um. Yeah, I think that And the funny story is he actually did not give me that nickname. Oh, really? It was my it was my mom's friend. Uh, her name is Marlene. It was uh, he, uh, she's a mom to my best friend Alexander, who lives in Miami. I mean, I I think my 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 mom has known her mom, uh, his, his mom since they were like five. Mm-hmm. Um, but like when I started to get in the racing thing, she used to say like 
she always like Talladega Nights because she loves Will Ferrell. She'd say like Nikki Bobby, <laughs> Nikki Bobby, and then they started saying it. Uh, and I think her and Chase, uh, they were they were up here in North Carolina, and then I had Chase over, and she started calling me Nikki Bobby, and then Chase started calling me Nikki Bobby, and then Ruben started calling me Nikki Bobby, and then yeah. everyone started calling me Nikki Bobby. But Ruben, like out of everyone, Ruben, like he only goes. Uh, he only like says he always says hi to me like okay hi nikki bobby like he doesn't say nick nikki like he says nikki bobby. i don't think he actually knows your last name no i don't think so either um, <laughs> no yeah ruben's definitely like any text i get from him nikki bobby so like he genuinely yep. like sticks true to his yeah to that nickname but yeah that's what he does i also was just thinking back uh to all the because i mean you ruben and chase were like the the three the three stooges uh, at Rev Racing with K and N stuff. I'm, do you remember it was um, it might have actually been South Boston. I think it was yeah, it was your debut weekend. I was working out in the hotel gym and you and Chase came and just like harassed me while yeah. I was like, on the elliptical or something. Oh no, hundred percent. Um, yeah, I, I definitely. <laughs> now that you say that, I do remember that. You um, were on like a exercise ball. And like Chase Probably was flinging around. me around the room, and I was just like, "I'm trying to listen to a podcast and just like grind out here. Can y'all leave me alone?" Yeah, no, I, that was definitely when I was a little younger, and I, I mean, I don't want to yeah. say I was a little more wild. I was just like, ah, whatever. You were, you I'm were not, a lot more yeah, wild. I was a lot more wild, um, especially. <laughs> I'm sure you saw in that first race or the second race, oh, yeah. Sobo. Oh yeah. But uh, yeah, I feel like I've calmed down a little. Yes, you have. Well, this has been fun, man. I appreciate your time. It was great to catch up with you because, again, we haven't chatted for a little bit. But we'll be watching this weekend at Mid-Ohio. I will hold down the fort in Miami for you. Text me a list of people you want me to say hi to. I got you. And uh, hopefully I'll see you and your family for Passover or something. We got to exchange brisket and latke recipes. No, 100%. We'll definitely have to arrange that. But, uh, yeah, enjoy the nice weather down there. I'll be a little jealous. I will. I will. I'll bring back some humidity for you, and hopefully you'll have a water bottle in your car by then. No, yeah, 100%, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Nikki, Bobby. Anytime. Thank you for having me. And we're back. want to give a big thank you to Christy at Rev Racing for helping coordinate that conversation. She is great to work with, as always. And Nick for giving me so much of his time. So, Nick, if I'm ever looking for residents in North Carolina or Florida... I will be sure to hit you up because you can help me out with that. Let's preview the Toyota Save Mart 350 from Sonoma Raceway real quick. NASCAR's first time back at the Northern California road course since 2019. Obviously didn't run last year because of COVID restrictions. California was pretty closed off. Safety first. But I'm excited that they're going back because Sonoma is one of my favorite tracks. It's my favorite trip to go on when I get the chance to go out there. Such a great facility. Such a great area of the country. I believe they are running the carousel, which I don't know if I'm a huge fan of, but is what it is. Chase Elliott, Martin Truex Jr., of course they're going to be the favorites going in, right? Jared Haas, though, on the Front Stretch podcast this week, illuminated an interesting stat and brought it to my attention. Guess who has the two best average finishes of Cup Series drivers at Sonoma? It's not Chase Elliott. It's not Martin Truex Jr. Apparently, I didn't check this, but I'll take him at his word, Kevin Harvick has the best average finish, and behind him, not too far, is Ryan Newman. I would not have expected Newman, the Rocket Man, to be solid at Sonoma, but here we are. So maybe you want to put them in your fantasy lineup. Harvick needs a good run this week uh, because if he's not good at Sonoma, that could be some bad news because he's typically very good there, as is Stuart Haas Racing. 
Also, another thing to watch, Ben Rhodes. He's making his Cup Series debut for Spire Motorsports because Justin Haley's going to be in mid-Ohio along with the Xfinity Series and Arkham Menard Series this weekend. William Byron won the pole for a race at Sonoma a few years back. He's going to be solid, too. I really just think it's going to be another Gibbs and Hendrick brigade up front, but I could be wrong. You never know. Tune in all the coverage on Fox Sports 1, Sunday, 3 p.m. Lug Nuts of the Week! Cue that funky music, white boy. Tony Robbins is reportedly interested in a partial ownership of track house racing. Stock going up for that team. NASCAR Championship Weekend is returning to Phoenix for 2022. It was officially announced. At track protocols are going to be updated beginning at Texas for the All-Star Race. Some highlights. No more health screenings. The driver-owner lot will allow guests. The garage and pre-race ceremonies are going to be back to pre-pandemic operations. And spotters are going to be allowed to come and go from the infield to the spotter stand. Penalties post-Charlotte. Kevin Bellacourt, the 77 crew chief, was fined 20 large, suspended one race for two loose lug nuts on the Cup Series car. It was his birthday recently, and that's not a good birthday present. Rudy Fugel, William Byron's crew chief, and Greg Ives for Alex Bowman. They were each fined 10 grand apiece for one loose lug nut in inspection. Autodesk is sponsoring Cole Custer and SHR for six races this season. Ramco is doing the same for AJ Allmendinger at Mid-Ohio and Michigan. Brackley War and Timothy Peters, they parted ways suspiciously earlier this week. Interesting move by both parties. Josh Berry is going to pile up the 25 for multiple races, though, upcoming in the truck series. Ben Rhodes, as I mentioned, he's making his cup debut at Sonoma with Spire this weekend. And how about this? Sprint car legend, World of Outlaws champion, Donnie Schatz. He's going to make his truck series debut at Knoxville Raceway later this summer with David Gillen Racing in the 17 truck. That'll be fun to watch. And that'll wrap things up for episode 110 of Victory Lane 2.0. Hope you guys like what you heard here today for myself and Nicky Bobby himself. If you did, do me a favor. I know it sounds trivial, but it does help in spreading the word. Leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, whatever your podcast player of choice is, whatever supports ratings and reviews. I would deeply appreciate that from the bottom of my heart. Check out my TikTok account. I'm doing weekly race recaps there, having fun with that. Check out the Front Stretch podcast. Check out frontstretch.com, uh, Go Wizards, NBC Sports Washington, SiriusXM, all my different jobs. What did I forget? I don't know. Uh, if I did forget anything, I'm sure I'll get to it next week. But thank you guys again for tuning in this week. It really is one of the highlights of my day uh, when I get messages from people saying they like the podcast, they like the interviews, the content, everything. It really does brighten my day. So if you want to give me an ego boost, tweet me at Davies Center. Uh, somebody did it this week. I want to give him a shout out. Ryan Hammond, at Ryan underscore Hammond 3, uh, did so on Twitter this week. It really, really was a... Uh, a nice gesture by him. So I appreciate that, Ryan. Thank you guys for tuning in once again. Until next week, stay safe, get outside, get vaccinated if you haven't already, and I'll catch you on the flip side.